We're in the midst of a series of messages entitled An Inconvenient Truth and uh, looking at truths uh, from Scripture uh, and plumbing the depths of those and using the Word of God as our plumb line to understand uh, not only these truths, but how we might better align our lives with these divine truths and seek to live holy and obedient lives according to the will of God. I appreciate so much the way that Pastor Ben uh, presented last week's message on the authority of Scripture and that it is a rule for our faith and our practice. And I uh, pray that it has already found a place in your heart and that you are uh, invigorated uh, by this word that came from God's word to us last week. Now, over these next weeks, we're going to be looking at particular truths that sometimes cause us a bit of discomfort, uh, sometimes are difficult to even talk about. Um, Today, we're going to talk about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. That is to say that there is only one way to salvation, and that is through the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ. Next week, I'm going to look at the topic of money. Now, there's an inconvenient truth, isn't it? To understand that not only in the financial wealth that we enjoy, but all the blessings that God has poured out on us, that we are called to be faithful stewards of these blessings and to use them for God's glory and the welfare of His kingdom. And so we're going to look at that truth next week. I'm uh, really searching the Word, and I hope you are too, being like a good Berean, studying the Word, looking for truth, examining it closely, praying that the Spirit would give you a spirit of discernment to to be able to determine that which is true and that which is false, and uh, seeking uh, uh, God's truth in this. Ben and I are also going to be talking about what it means to abide in Christ and how the Christian is called to abide in Him and He abide in us. The call to sexual purity in February, we'll be talking about the need to stay pure and holy with our bodies, these temples of the Holy Spirit. I'll be hiding off the particular issue of homosexuality and how the Christian should be uh, thinking through these these issues that that hit us and confront us so much in our world today. Be dealing particularly with that issue in the month of February. Uh, ben and I will also, in a tag team message, will be looking at the realities of heaven and hell. I'm going to play heaven, and he's going to play hell. And uh, we're going to maybe I'll wear a white hat and he a black one. How about that? And uh, we'll be talking about the realities of heaven and hell and searching the scriptures on what the Bible has to say about uh, these eternal, these separate eternal destinies. So it's an interesting journey, and I hope that uh, uh, you are following along with us. One thing we want you to know, thanks to Shanoa Herbst, she has made available the PowerPoint slides that we're using on the website, so you can now listen to the message, but you can also have the PowerPoint slides, which may be an aid to your listening and your study. If you choose to access that, we want you to know it's there on the FAC website, facerie.org. Now, today we look at the exclusivity of Jesus' claim and declaration that He is the only way to God, that there aren't many paths to God, 
but there is only one way to God. Now, as I study the life of Christ and His ministry on earth, I'm taken by the fact that people who heard Him preach and teach were constantly being amazed and astonished by His profound teaching. One example of this is found in, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1 and verse 22, where it says, as the people listened to his teaching, they were, their response was one of amazement. They were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. There's a, a specific uh, contrast there between Jesus' teaching, apparently he was anointed by the Spirit, he taught with power and authority, unlike the teachers of his day, the Pharisees, the, the scribes, the, the religious rulers of the day, the teachers of the law, Jesus was unlike them, and he taught with great authority and power. And they were amazed at this power. But it's interesting to me that some of the things that Jesus taught, if you really look at them closely, that they turn ordinary logic upside down, topsy-turvy. I mean, look at some of the things that Jesus declared. He said that, uh, that if we want to save our life, we must be first willing to what? Lose it. He said that in His kingdom, that in priorities, that the last would be what? First. And the first shall be last, said Jesus. Jesus taught in His teaching that we should... This is... Uh, really counterintuitive, that we should rejoice, take joy in times of persecution. That goes against the grain of human logic. That it is better to give than receive. That when someone uh, comes against us and strikes us on the cheek, that instead of retaliating, that in, in His way of thinking, in His kingdom, that we should turn the other cheek. But among all of these astonishing assertions and claims, it seems to me that the most outrageous and controversial assertion that Jesus made in His earthly ministry was the words to His disciples in comforting them as He's preparing to leave. In John 14, John, uh, Dave read them to you earlier, when He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is an astonishing, when you think about it, an astonishing assertion. I'm wondering how those words strike you. Do you accept them and embrace them? Are you okay with them? Or do they rankle you a wee bit? There are some in our world today who would say that Jesus' declaration there in John 14 and verse 6, that His statement is narrow-minded, that it is bigoted, that it is intolerant, and it is arrogant. That He is exclusively the only way. And and I fear that, that some of us in our pluralistic world today are being infected with that kind of mindset. We live in a world where there seems to be Uh, Endless options and choices in virtually every area of our life. We live in a very pluralistic world. And Jesus' words, when He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, seem so politically incorrect. In this world where there's this cafeteria of choices, multiple ways to get to your destination, multiple ways 
to build a house, multiple ways to acquire an education, and so on. To say that there's only one way, one choice, one option, somehow feels wrong to us. We are reluctant, if not altogether resistant, to the idea to box anyone in to have only one choice, one option. But let's face it, it seems to me that there are many aspects of our life here on earth where there is only one way for something to be done and done right. For example, there is only one way for human beings to come into this world, and that is by being born. There is only one ingredient to life that we couldn't do without even for a few minutes, and that is air. I went recently to my dentist, and he determined that I needed to have a, a root canal. And he determined there, there was a right way to do a root canal. He didn't go back through the back of my neck to do my root canal. He asked me to open wide and stuck some Novocaine in there and did all of his masterful work as a dentist and accomplished his work. There's there was a right way to do it. I don't think that there are a whole lot of options on some things in life. Even in a world that's characterized by seeming unlimited choices, it's proper, I think, to ask whether there might be only one way for a person to be saved. And perhaps you're sitting here this morning as we begin to, to explore this topic of Christ's exclusive claims. You're sitting there and you're wondering to yourself, can there really just be one way? And if there is just one way, how can we know which way it is? Who's right? Are they right or are we right? And if you say that Christianity is right belief, on what basis do you make those claims? How can we make that claim that Christianity is right when there's so many different religions and denominations in our world? And if Christianity is the only way, then what happens to the millions of, of people who aren't Christians, who are not Christ's followers, particularly the ones who, who have led good moral lives? Do they just go to hell? Or does, in the end, everyone get to go to heaven? Are, are we really functionally just universalists when it's all said and done, and Jesus didn't mean what He said, and we're all just going to get to heaven? And what about those who've never heard about Jesus? Are they liable? Are they held liable for that? And if they do hear about Jesus, how much, how much do they need to believe? What do they have to do to be sure that they really are a Christ follower? And I will acknowledge right from the start that these are all fair questions. In fact, they're not only fair, but they are extremely important questions. And hopefully, to some extent, we'll be able to address some of those this morning. Today, there are millions of people, millions of people, who believe that there are many roads that lead to God. In fact, uh, some of you might even question why I'm even talking about this truth this morning, because you just readily embrace it. It's not a, a question or a problem for you. You don't have a problem when, with Jesus' words when He says that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Him. That's not an issue for you. 
But apparently, according to a recent survey, it, it is an issue because a survey that was done by the Barna Research Group found that 68% of born-again Christians, I'm not talking about secular pagan people, I'm talking about people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ and identify themselves as a born-again Christian, 68% of them believe that there's more than one way to God. Could it be that in this audience this morning, as I speak, that there are some of you who, who are struggling and maybe even have doubts about Jesus' exclusive claims? There are people today that, that have this idea that searching for God is something like climbing a mountain. Since everyone knows that there's not just one way to climb a mountain, mountains are too big for that, there must be a number of ways, a number of paths to climb a mountain. And we transfer that, that concept over to our ideas about God and all the religions of the world and th- that these different religions are just different approaches. They're different paths. They're different roads that all lead to the same God up the same mountain. Because this God that we serve is too big to be comprehended, too big to be thought of, too big to be worshipped in just one way. Therefore, we conclude that all of the the, the names of God in all of the world's religions today are just all this, the name of the same God. It's God by a different name. Now, when you first look at that, at first blush, it seems good on the surface. But it doesn't square, does it, with Jesus' words and assertion? I mean, he says, I am the way, definite article, the truth, definite article, the life. He's not a way, a truth, a life. And then he further compounds this exclusive claim by saying, and no one comes to God except through me. Through me. Through Jesus. No one. It's all inclusive. No one comes to the God except through me. Which means that unless you come to Christ, you turn to Christ, accept Christ as your forgiver and your leader, you cannot be in a right and saving relationship with God. You, the door, Jesus says, I am the door, I am the gate. You must come through me. He is the only way. There are no other ways. The gospel of Jesus Christ makes a one-way exclusive claim about the person of Jesus. And we must understand that if we accept, as Ben preached last week, if we accept that this Bible which we hold in our hands and cherish is truly the Word of God, and that when the Bible speaks, God speaks, if indeed this is truth, then we must understand that if we accept the Bible as truth, that the teaching contained within this rule for faith and Christian living is true, and that Jesus' assertion is true, therefore, does it not stand to reason, there is only one way, not multiple ways, just one, to a right saving relationship to God. But, accepting that, I think, leaves us with some nagging questions. One of those questions is this. What about the good things in other religions? I mean, we claim the Bible as our authoritative text. 
There are sincere people who claim other texts as their authority. The Bhagavad Gita, the Koran, the Book of Mormon. Uh, There are world religions that have set uh, their holy book up on an equal authority basis as we as Christians do with the Bible. Think about the religious leaders who, who set them up themselves up as authority. I mean, you can select from the Pope or the Dalai Lama or Hare Krishna or Buddha or Mohammed. When it comes to religious groups, you can align yourself with Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or you can link up with Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism or Judaism or the Church of Scientology or Amway or Mary Kay. I just wanted to see if you were listening. The choices are unbelievable. David Barrett, the editor of the World Christian Encyclopedia, has identified nearly 10,000 distinct religions in the world. 10,000. With that many religious groups in the world, you can begin to understand why some people struggle with the idea that all of those spiritual pathways are just wrong without any good in them. But I want to remind you that that's not what Jesus said. He did not say that there was not any good in them. What Jesus said doesn't make you have to say that all the other world religions got it wrong. You don't have to deny the existence of some truth or some goodness in these other religious perspectives. C.S. Lewis makes that point so very clear in his writings. He said, if you are a Christian, you do not have to believe that all the other religions are simply wrong all through. If you are a Christian, you are free to think that all these religions, even the queerest ones, contain at least some hint of truth. Lewis goes on to suggest that we think of this in terms of arithmetic. He says there's only one, only one right answer to the mathematic problem, 2 plus 2. Let's see how alert you are. The answer is 4. But Lewis says, but if you were to answer that arithmetic problem, 2 plus 2, with the answer, whoops, 6 or 37, if you answered 6, you were closer to the truth than 37. You'd still be wrong, but you'd be closer to the truth. While there's only one right answer, some answers are closer to being right than others. Now, I want you to know that I'm not an expert in world religions. I took a couple of courses in in college and seminary, and I I am not the end-all to be-all on world religions. But the, the, the limited study that I have done makes me to realize that there are many things in these other world religions that are admirable, that are noteworthy, that are good things that are very much in line with the God of the Bible and the teachings of Jesus. But that's very different. When I say that, that there are things that are good and admirable, that's very different than saying that all religions are basically the same or offer the same path to God or are on an equal footing. Do you understand what I'm saying? Let me just give you one example. As a Christian, I can acknowledge the fact that there is truth in much of Buddhism's ideas, such as the first two of the Four Noble Truths that are taught in Buddhism, 
which state, the, the first two of the Four Noble Truths, states that there is a lot of suffering in the world. Would we all agree with that? Yes, there's a lot of suffering in the world. I believe that is true. The second noble truth in Buddhism says that much of the suffering in our world today springs from our desires because our desires, our selfish, prideful desires are at the root of most of the world's suffering. I believe that's probably true. When it comes to war, poverty, and all of those things, I believe that there's a lot of truth in that, that much of the suffering in our world springs from our own evil desires. When you look at Buddhism and its claims, it teaches many things that, that I can appreciate as being clearly moral teaching, good moral teaching. It teaches that you shouldn't engage in the taking of life, that you shouldn't steal, that you shouldn't lie, that you shouldn't engage in, in immoral sexual behavior. Yet Buddhism also presents enormous tension points with the Christian faith. In fact, the Dalai Lama himself has stated publicly that the central doctrines of Buddhism and Christianity are not compatible. That is to say, Christianity and Buddhism are not bedfellows. The Dalai Lama himself said, you cannot be a Buddhist Christian or a Christian Buddhist. And he is right. Why is he right? One of the reasons that he is right is that Christianity believes in a personal God. Buddhism doesn't even believe in a higher being. Buddhism is essentially an atheistic religion, that there is no God. Christianity believes that sin and and failure in our life can be met with the forgiveness and the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And that the ultimate goal, that is eternity with God, is not something that we have to earn or do, but that Christianity is about something that is already done. This is a beautiful thing about the Christian faith. It's not a D-O religion, a do religion. It is a D-O-N-E religion. It is done. It is finished. Through Jesus Christ, the work has been done. And we are restored to our relationship with God, not because of our works, not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus Christ has already done. And that if we are willing to humble ourselves and repent, that God is willing to give as a free gift to us, out of His love and mercy, a saving forgiveness that will save us not only for this life, but, praise God, for all of eternity. To the Buddhist, the ultimate goal is not heaven, but is nirvana. And nirvana, for the Buddhist, can be reached, unlike Christianity, can be reached through personal effort. So if I work hard enough, if I strive hard enough, if I seek to be a good moral person, according to the Buddhist, I can reach this ultimate goal, this state of nirvana. For the Buddhist, sin is not something that can be forgiven. Instead, it's something that needs to be compensated for personally. I, for the Buddhist, I need to atone for it personally. Thanks be to God that I believe in a faith where my works, the Scripture says, are like filthy rags to God. And that it's only the perfect righteousness, the perfect Lamb of God that has settled the account with this just and holy God that makes my relationship to be restored with Him. 
However, I think that the greatest distinctive between Buddhism and Christianity is that there is no sense of a true Savior sent by God for the sake of everyone in the world. And for us as followers of Christ, that person is Jesus. And these examples that I'm giving to you from Buddhism alone, and we could go on if we had time this morning to talk about contrast between Christianity and Hinduism and Christianity and Islam. This kind of radical separation, I think, is what separates us from, from these other religions. Christians believe there's one God. Hindus believe there are millions of gods. Christians embrace Jesus as the Son of God. Muslims don't even rank Jesus up among the top of the prophets, much less being the Savior of the world. And it seems to me that whenever you have divisions like this, that you have only two options. You can either say that somebody is right in that particular area and everybody else is wrong. Or you can say that everybody in that particular area is wrong. But what you can't say, you cannot say that everybody believes about the same thing. Because when you look at it really closely, there's no comparison. Absolutely none. And I believe that it would be intellectually dishonest to say that all these religions believe the same thing. Because clearly they don't. Unless God is some senile, confused, muddled, schizophrenic, unbalanced being who isn't sure of what He stands for then I believe that there is religious truth and there is religious falsehoods. And I want to know the truth. And I believe that the areas of disagreement between Christianity and Buddhism, Christianity and Hinduism, Christianity and Taoism, Christianity and New Age mysticism, whatever it is, the areas of disagreement between these faiths and ours are not trivial and are important. Because they deal with the very nature of who God is and the identity and the person and work of Jesus Christ and how we enter into fellowship and relationship with this almighty God. Now, I know what some of you might be feeling about this point. But Rick, in this pluralistic world, isn't that attitude awfully intolerant? Isn't saying that somebody is right Somebody else is wrong or even thinking that way, running the risk of being an intolerant individual. Let's walk through that for a moment. It seems to me that there are three kinds of tolerance. The first kind of tolerance is what I call legal tolerance. This has to do with our basic First Amendment rights as Americans to believe what we want to believe. We have a certain set of rights as Americans. You can believe what you want to believe. And you are given the freedom and the right to believe that. There's nothing in, in all of what I'm saying this morning that goes against uh, this kind of legal toleration. In fact, it seems to me that if you really get into the Word of God, that the Bible is one of the greatest advocates of legal tolerance. The second kind of tolerance is, is what I call social or cultural tolerance. This is accepting other people of other persuasions 
for who they are regardless of what they believe. And I, I, I really want to emphasize this point because I think there are some of you as we go through this series on inconvenient truths that, that might be prone to think that what we're encouraging is some kind of a narrow-minded, bigoted approach to life. And you go around thumping people on the head with your Bible. I believe that, that we need to love people. We need to care about them. Honestly care about them. No matter what their persuasions are. We need to love them enough to listen to them. We need to love them enough to be open to them relationally. To build friendship and bridges of relationship to them. And there is nothing in what I'm saying this morning that goes against that either. It seems to me that if Jesus stood for anything, it was open, loving acceptance of other people who weren't persuaded as He was, people who mattered to God. But it seems to me that there's a third level of tolerance. And this is, this is where the rub is. The third kind of tolerance is intellectual tolerance. This is accepting what someone believes as right, regardless of what you might think or believe is right. And it's only in that sense that this would be considered intolerant, because Jesus didn't believe that everything and everyone was right. The Bible clearly holds to the idea that there is truth and falsehood, there is right and wrong. But that's the way most of us feel, isn't it? Think about it. Do any of us really believe in intellectual tolerance? Take, for example, if someone would come up to you and, and say to you, I believe that the best way to improve the performance of your automobile would be to pour sand in your gas tank. Now, I can be a tolerant person of that person legally, and say you have every right to pour sand in your gas tank. I could be socially and culturally uh, sensitive to that person and tolerate them and say, well, you think you know what's the right way to, to uh, enhance your car's performance. If you think you, it's going to help to put sand in your, your uh, gas tank, go ahead. You have every right to pour sand into your car. It's your car, and I'm not going to get all worked up and try and stop you from legally doing what you have the right to do. Have at it. You're free to be an idiot if you want to. And if you do, I'll still be your friend. I'll still come to your house tonight for pizza, and we can have a wonderful conversation. But being legally tolerant and socially tolerant doesn't mean that I'm going to be intellectually tolerant. I'm still going to tell you that I don't believe that putting sand in your car is the right thing to do. I'm not going to put sand in my car, although it might be cheaper. And I don't mind telling you that I'm not going to put sand in my car. Further, I'm not going to be reluctant to tell you that I'm not going to go out and recommend that other people put sand in their cars either. See, you can hold to the value that, that other people have a right to their beliefs without believing all their points of view are equally valid. Imagine that a blind man were standing on the edge of a cliff about to tip over the cliff and asked you, 
which way should I step? Would it be best if you were to respond? Well, I really shouldn't tell you that one direction is better than the other. You see, when we talk about the importance of tolerance, we mean legal tolerance or social or cultural tolerance. But I don't believe that we mean intellectual tolerance. So that when we look at the words of the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 4, speaking before the religious leaders of his day, and talk about a pluralistic world, was there any world that was more pluralistic than the first century? When Peter says in Acts chapter 4 and verse 10, it is by the name of Jesus Christ and none other. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. To our modern ears, our postmodern ears, that sounds very bigoted, narrow-minded, and arrogant. But Peter wasn't refusing anybody their right to believe differently. He wasn't rejecting anyone personally, socially, or culturally. What was Peter doing there? He was just telling the truth. And I think it's high time in our postmodern world for people to stand up and start telling the truth. And in particular, I think it behooves men of God who are called by God to preach the Word of God and divide the Word rightly to begin standing behind these sacred desks and telling the truth. Forget about political correctness. Announce and declare the Word of God with fervor and anointing. It's time to tell the truth. But you say, but there's still a tension point, Rick. What about all those millions of people those really good people who aren't Christians. So what of them? Are they going to hell? It's a big struggle. Huge. I want you to know that I, I, I struggle with this personally. There are many people who are struggling with this. In fact, there's a whole brand of what's called evangelical universalism that's going on today. In the evangelical church, there are, there are people who are, who are buying into the idea. They've, they've really become functional universalists. Have bought into the idea that in the end, everyone will be saved. Everyone. I, I like the idea of that. It's appealing to me but it doesn't square with the Word of God. We've agreed that the Word of God is going to be our rule. It's going to be our authority. So this is a struggle. So let's, let's deal with it for a moment. The thing that I want to assure you this morning is this. In, in regards to the, the millions of, of well-meaning, good people out there who aren't Christians, first of all, I believe that God is utterly and completely fair and just. We serve a God who is perfect in all of His attributes. And I believe that the God we serve will do right by every person. God's character is perfect and it is without flaw. God will treat every person with complete and total love and He will treat every person with complete and total justice. I'm glad I'm not God. 
and I'm glad he is. So that's first. Utterly, completely fair and just. Second, let's make sure we understand this whole heaven and hell business. And we'll talk more about this in our message on heaven and hell. But let's get a few basics down. God wants us. In fact, he made us to be in relationship with him. You remember before the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden that that Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the evening. They walked in perfect relationship with God. But through their own sinful choice and rebellion and through that sin and we inheriting their, uh, their sin, that that relationship was broken. They were cast out of the Garden of Eden. But God in His love and mercy offered us a chance to restore that relationship to Him, to repair the brokenness, to come back to Him and be in fellowship with Him. And if we do that now, if we come to a saving relationship with God through Christ, we can look forward not only to experiencing the abundant life in the here and now, but we can look forward to that relationship continuing on for eternity in heaven. If we choose, however, because man has free will and moral responsibility, if we choose to not return to God and we never enter into that saving relationship through Christ, our choice will determine and set our destiny forever. There is a way that seemeth right to man But in the end, one of those options leads to what? Destruction. Bottom line is this. Heaven is where God is. And hell is where God is not. Can you imagine a place where God isn't? I mean, aren't you glad that there's evidences of God all about us? And that God's restraining influence, even in this evil and despicable world, that God's restraining influence to the Holy Spirit is, is, is present everywhere. We sang it this morning. There's not a plant or flower below. God's evidence is, is everywhere. But hell is where God is not. And God wants to be with us, and we can be with Him for all of eternity. We can. Because He offers to us this gift of grace. Forgiveness of sins and eternal life. The Bible teaches us that because of God's love for us, that Jesus voluntarily offered Himself up as our substitute to pay the penalty for our sin, a debt that we could not repay. And when we receive His sacrifice on our behalf, that we become reunited with God, not just for this life, but for all eternity. Which brings up the question once again, But what about those people who sincerely want God, seem to search for spiritual truth, and appear to be genuinely decent and good people, but reject Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life? What about them, Rick? Do you want the politically correct answer, or do you want the Bible's answer? Jesus says that He's the only way to the Father. And that we must believe in Him to see the Father. And friends, either that is true or it isn't. I believe it's true. 
And I've staked my whole life and my faith in that. Does that make me a judge of who's going to heaven and who's going to hell? No. God is the judge. He will do right. God knows the heart. In fact, I'm quite convinced that when we get to heaven, there's going to be a number of surprises. And among some of the surprises that we'll have will be some of the people who are there and some of the people who aren't. But I believe this, that no one will experience saving grace and forgiveness, will get to heaven without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This belief compels me and should compel you to take this message, this good news of Jesus, to the whole world. It should compel us to go into the highways and byways and announce the good news to people who are lost and who are living under God's judgment without Jesus. Because we love people and we know that God loves them so much that He sent His only Son to die for them. We, should, we don't want people to die in their sins and go to hell. And that should fuel our mission as believers so that when we go out these doors, we should recognize that we're entering into a mission field taking the good news of the Gospel that there is life in Jesus. That's why we should not be content to sit around in our comfy pews acting like we're a social club. Because there are people who are lost and dying who are outside of Christ and we should be out there. It's our reason for being. Taking this good news to the people of the earth. To the uttermost parts of the world. This is what has fueled the Christian and missionary alliance over its hundred year history is announcing this good news to those who are lost. Because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance through Christ. And we need to announce that to the world. So I must close. And I'm going to draw the drawstring on the sack and make the point. Jesus' statement in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I think forces us to make a decision. And the biggest decision that we have to make is about Jesus personally. And we have to determine one of four things. That either Jesus was telling the truth, that's our first option, Jesus was telling the truth, or, second option, that Jesus was a madman, that he was absolutely deluded, that what he thought about himself was removed from reality. He was very sincere, but he was self-deceived. He was a madman. Or a third option, that Jesus was a liar. He knew what he said wasn't true, but he said it anyways because he wanted a following, so he was willing to lie about it. Or that Jesus became a myth. I'm not talking about whether or not he was a historical figure, that whether he lived or not. I think there's enough historical record to indicate that. But I'm talking about his followers putting words into his mouth that he never said, and as the years went by, that his teaching and his miracles became larger than life, and he just became a huge folk hero. It seems to me that Jesus' words, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life force each one of us to make a decision about Him. We're left with a decision. And I say that there's more than enough evidence for 20 centuries of human history to believe that Jesus Christ is the truth, the way, and the life, and that He's the only way to God. And that we can't, as being intellectually honest, we can't be faithful to Jesus and believe or affirm anything else. You must believe, if you're going to be intellectually honest, as a follower of Christ, as one who trusts in the Word of God, you must be faithful to Jesus. Which leads me to my final word today. What about you? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your only way to get to heaven? Or are you trusting something else? Are you trusting your own good works? Are you trusting your own understanding of things? If what the Bible says is true, you need to believe in Jesus for your entrance into heaven. You must realize that you are separated from God and that Jesus is your only way, exclusively only one. No two ways about it. Only way to be reconciled to the Father. That Jesus took your place on the cross so you could go free. There's no two ways about it. There's only one path to God. So what's your verdict this morning? You know, when I was a little boy, uh, my family spent part of our summers in a little village in the upper parts of Ontario, Canada. We would spend, we would rent a cottage on the shores of a, a little lake called Gorman Lake. It was one of the best fishing lakes in that area. Bass, rock bass, trout. It was a wonderful, wonderful summer vacation. My family was, uh, I don't know why, and I need to ask, but we thought the best way to approach a trip like this was to start at nighttime. I suppose it, my parents were, dealt with that a bit selfishly so the kids would sleep. <laughs> Spent all day packing the car and about nine at night as it became dusk in those June evenings, we'd all load into the car. My brother and I would have made beds in the back of the station wagon. Didn't need to worry about car seats or seat belts in those days. And we'd lay stretched out with all of our goodies and our little bags full, full of great things, dreaming of the adventures that we'd have over three weeks on the lake in Ontario. I can remember uh, uh, peeking up over the, the back seat and, and from time to time my mom and dad uh, referring to the old mobile map that he had. Even though he had made that trip many times, still referred to the map. So we crossed the Peace Bridge from the U.S. into Canada and made our way from our home in Olean, New York, up to Killaloo Station in Ontario. There were a few times that my father thought that he was uh, smart enough uh, to take an alternate route. He knew a better way to Killaloo Station. And uh, a couple of times he took those 
better ways. And I can remember some what I'll call interesting conversations between my father and my mother. Because usually his better ways got us lost and involved a loss of time as well. It seems to me that um, there are some people who are looking for other ways to God. But in the process, they're lost. They've lost their way. They're looking for purpose and peace And they're following this way and that way and this way and that way, thinking that that will lead them to the God of peace. To peace with God and the peace of God. And yet it just gets them further lost. There's only one way to peace. And as politically incorrect as it sounds and appears in this pluralistic world, there's only one way to salvation. Salvation is only found through Jesus Christ. Because I believe and have staked my life in this faith claim that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. No two ways about it. There's only one way. Would you stand and let's pray?